Let's pray as we prepare to get into God's Word today. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, your protection, your provision for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful Father. You've already made provision for whatever comes against us. And we want to learn to turn and receive that today. And Father, today as we continue to look at who you are, your word has been given to us to reveal yourself to us. Father, we need many of us just a refreshing of who it is you are that we serve and who has redeemed us and saved us. And Father, some of us may have never heard it before. And so we come to you and trust in the spirit of the living God to take this living word and to breathe it into our hearts that we may see what, we need to, what you want us to see, we may hear what you want us to hear, and we may grasp and understand with our hearts what you want us to understand. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. amen and amen. Well, in preparing today's message, I just had a sense it was going to be a little shorter, and I now know why. Uh, so we're going to, we started last week uh, to begin to look at this question of who is this God that we serve? And, and we, you know, some of us, I've been a Christian 41 years. Some of you have been Christians longer than that. Some of you more recent than that. But it's important to go back and look at the foundation of what we are and who, what, who we believe in because your faith is based on who you believe God is and what you know about Him. And so this God who, who is our Father, this God who saved us, has not kept us in doubt about who He is. He's revealed Himself. We looked last week at the fact that you cannot figure out who God is on your own. God has to show Himself to you. And in the Bible's full of examples, and we're going to look at several of them today, where God has done that. But we went back to look at the primary one, which is where God calls a people, it forms a people for himself, the nation of Israel, and he calls a man Abram, and makes a covenant with him, that through him God will be the father of many nations through this man. And then through his son Isaac, and then through his son Jacob, and through his twelve sons, God makes a covenant with them to be a, have a special relationship that they would be His people. And God did that not because He didn't love the rest of the people. He wanted to use them as an example to reveal who He is. In fact, God placed the nation of Israel right in what we call Palestine today because at that time it was a crossroads of the major trade routes between the east and the west. And God put His people right in that crossroads so that people that would be traveling from the wealth of the Far East would come back through there and see who this nation is and want to know who is your God that you serve and they would be able to tell them Jehovah, the true and the living God is our God. But they squandered that opportunity. And we talked last week about the fact that, that God brought them, this young nation of only 70 people, into, into Egypt because there was a famine coming. And He did that to protect them. But then they overstayed their need to be there and they became literally a nation of millions of people and, and in 430 years. And they lived under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, which is one of the most ungodly nations at that time that's ever existed. They had thousands and thousands and thousands of God. For every little need they had, they had a God to meet that need. And some of them made idols of them, some of them were, were living things, and they worshiped these idols, and it's important to remember that, because that's the land that the, that the Israelites that we're looking at came out of. So they were, in, they, were, they were saturated all around them with all kinds of idolatry. So when God brings them out, God has to introduce Himself to them, and show them that He's not like 
the cattle that they worshipped, and he's not like Isis, and he's not like all those gods, that this is the true and the living God. So he has to introduce himself to them. And the reason that's so important is we're looking at an example of God revealing to his people who he is, so that from this introduction, we can allow the Holy Spirit to begin to do the same things for us. So what we looked at last week, as we saw in Exodus 19, where God had Moses come up the mountain and said, I want to meet with my people and I'm going to come down on this mountain in three days and I'm going to come down in fire and thunder and lightnings on this mountain. And we said that God reveals there are many facets of God. There's the awesome, powerful thunder and lightning and the awesome power of God, but there's also a sweet gentleness to God. Because there are times God appeared to people in a, and spoke to them in a still, small voice. So God has many facets and sides, and He reveals the ones He knows we need to see so that He can work in us what He wants to work in us. And we saw that God, knowing where these people had come from and knowing what they were like, God understood that He needed to reveal Himself in His majesty, in His power, so that they would have a reverence and a fear for Him. Not a fear of Him, but a reverence and fear of who He is and this mightiness that this is a real God. He's not like the gods of Egypt that are not real. This is the true and the living God. And this is the God that delivered them supernaturally out of Egypt. And we we went through some of that last week. So God tells Moses, now I'm going to meet with my people in three days. Go down and prepare them. So they needed to know that they can't just saunter up and meet with this God. They had to wash their clothes, not because they were dirty, but to signify they needed to be cleansed. The husbands needed to stay away from physical relationship with their wives to, to help them recognize they were being separated out and becoming holy before this holy God. And then at the end of those three days, Moses brought the people out. And God told Moses, mark the foot of this mountain so that they don't try to come up on this mountain because if they do, they're going to die. Why? Because this is a holy God coming down in this mountain. And that's what we saw last week. And we, we're going to pick up here a little bit. So they come to the base of this mountain. And let's go to Exodus 20, verse 18. Exodus is in the Old Testament, John. It's the second book, John. It's not that hard to find. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 18. This is what happened after they see God come down with the thunders and lightning. Now all the people witnessed the thunders and lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And the, when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. And then they said to Moses... Now what God has told Moses earlier was that we was coming down here so that when they knew who this God was, they would keep His covenant and would not sin. What the people told Moses is when they, he said, well, this is what we're going to do, he said, everything God tells us, the people said, whatever God tells us, we'll do. Because what God said is, I'm coming down, I'm gonna, I want to meet with you, because so that you will learn to keep the covenant that I made with Abraham, your side of the covenant. And so, and so in order to do that, they need to see who I am. This is important. So when Moses tells them that, the people, without seeing God, says, oh, we'll keep the covenant, we'll obey the law, 
We'll, we'll keep the word of God. We'll do everything he says. We'll be obedient. Because they were trusting in their own intentions. Ever start a diet? And trust in your own intentions? And see how far you got by your own intentions? And so, so that's what they say. So now God's come down, they've come out, and here's their response. Verse 19. They said to Moses, nah, You speak with us, and we will listen to you. But don't let God speak with us, lest we die. So what they're basically saying is, God's invited us out here so He can talk with us. This is too scary. We're going back to our homes. You go talk to God, and you bring that message on Sunday morning. I mean, you bring that message, and we'll do whatever you say. And Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come down to test you. That word test actually means to train you. So God's not, He's training them. It's kind of like when, when, when um, back in the old days when you get drafted, or suppose you, you enlist in the Marine Corps. That's a good example. You miss the Marine Corps, you know, you come in there, simplify, I'm going to be a Marine. Boy, I've looked at the ads, I've met with a recruiter. I want to do this. Give me a rifle, give me my uniform. I'm ready to go. And they say, no, no. There's some things you need to learn first. You need to be trained. And so we have a place called Quantico where we will send you and we will renew your mind <laughs> to what it means to be a Marine. And what they do is they take them through basic, and some of you have been in other branches, basic education. No, it's basic training. Because education comes is a mental exercise. So if you're teaching something, you pick up information, put it in your notebook, and you learn it. Training is when your behavioral habits are changed because somebody makes you do things you don't think you can do or don't want to do. So God is here training them so that they will walk in the covenant that He's made and they have their own idea of what it takes to do that. This is so important because we do the same thing. So Moses said, do not fear, for the Lord has come down to test you or to train you that you may, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And we mentioned last week, isn't it interesting? In that same verse, Moses says, don't fear, because God wants to teach you how to fear. What's that all about? Because there are two different types of fear there. He says, don't be afraid of God, which is what they were, so you run away from Him. That's afraid of God's punishment and God's anger. He says, God wants you to learn to fear Him because you know who He really is. And when you know who this God really is, then you won't sin. This is God's method that God knows for keeping us from sin. And like the Israelites, we have our own ideas of what it's going to take to keep us from sinning and keep, failing to keep our end of the bargain. So the people stood off, far off, and Moses drew near the thickness where God was. All right. Now, how did God want to communicate this? To do this, we're going to go back to chapter 20, because what we skipped over is what God said to Moses 
at the top of the mountain. And this section of scripture we call the ten suggestions. The ten good ideas. The ten principles. No, they're called the ten commandments. That's a word that's hard to get through to people nowadays because we don't let anybody command anything. We don't even command ourselves. The Ten Commandments. See, there's only two answers to a commandment. Obedience and disobedience. There's no gray area in between. Well, I'm trying hard. Uh, I don't really understand what you mean. It's yes or no. Now, this is God knows what they need to know about Him. This is why we're looking at this. God knows the foundation of the relationship. This is all not because God wants to boss them around. This is because God understands what they need more than they understand what they need. And I suggest to you that God understands today more of what we need than we understand of what we need. So this first one we're going to look at, we're going to take several weeks to just look at this very first commandment, because you get this one straight, the rest of them are easy. This is the foundation. This understanding of this first commandment is the foundation for everything we do with God and everything God does with us. It's understanding this. In the day and age you and I live, very few people really have a grasp on this. Because we're living in an age of grace. And grace is exactly what this is all about. It's God's grace that He even talked to them. Think about that. We're going to look at that. It's God's grace that He talked to them. It's God's grace that He told them what He expected. He's doing this so they can know Him, so that He can be a blessing in their lives. And so what does God say? We're only going to look at the first... I'll read through it and then we're going to go back. We're just going to read the first three verses. And the Lord God spoke all these words saying, He's speaking this to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now when we read this, God, most of us, almost all of us, God didn't bring out of Egypt, but Egypt represents the world system and the world's idolatry and the world's ways. But So He brought you and me out of the world out of the house of bondage. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. We'll talk about that down the road. But all we're going to look at this morning is, go back to verse 2. First thing God says is, I am the Lord. Stop there. Let's take that apart. Let's see what He's saying in this. I am. God is saying, not He's saying I will be, He's not saying I was before. I am today what I'm about to tell you. And He is today what He was back then when God spoke these words to Moses. God just always is. The only time God has is now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. If you'll hear His voice today, now. We get so caught up sometimes in the past and so caught up in the future, we forget that God is with us here today, right now, in your life, working in you as we sang earlier, right now. The one who is speaking with them 
off from the mountain was right then who he says he is. But what I want to really look at is the next two words, the Lord. Notice that in your Bible and on the screen, L-O-R-D here is an uppercase. Sometimes you'll see in the English Bibles, Lord is just an initial cap, and sometimes it's all uppercase. That's significant because there's different Hebrew words behind that. The, Greek, the Hebrew word that begins with just Lord with a capital L is the word Adonai, which means ultimate authority. Sometimes it's the word Elohim, which means God. We'll talk about that next time. But when it's all uppercase, it is the word which we translate as Yahweh or Jehovah. And I want to give you some background to this word, because this is so significant about what God is imparting to them about who He is. There are many names that God uses to communicate Himself, especially in the Old Testament. And they each have a significance, because who God is is too big to be described by one word. So when God uses the word, I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who is your physician, who heals, that's just one aspect of who He is. I am Jehovah Jireh, which is I am the Lord who is your provider, who provides for you. That's just one aspect of who He is. But this one talks about the essence of who He is. Because the, the, in fact, in the, in the, if you look at it in the Hebrew Bibles, the translations, there's no vowels here. It's just why. What is it here? Oh, it's Y-H-W-H. They take the vowels out. And the, the rabbis, when they would read the scriptures where this name was mentioned, wouldn't say the name. It was like a blip. You hear people in the news say things and they want to cut out a word because it's not appropriate, which that person shouldn't have been saying anyway, but it's not appropriate to go over the news. They go, maybe some little thing that blots it out. Well, that's what this was like. And they did that not because it was an expletive, because this name was so holy, they did not believe that their lips were clean enough to utter it. And how easily we throw God's name around today. Oh, God! Just, oh, God! Realize what you're saying. We'll talk, we won't get into that. We talk about taking the Lord's name in vain is not necessarily swearing. We use His name so lightly because we don't know who He really is. I am the Lord. Now this name is the name that God gave to Moses. When Moses was being introduced to God, when God was preparing him to go back and deliver the people, and Moses, God appears to him in this burning bush... And the word burning just means it would look like it was on fire, but it was never consumed. It was the glory of God. It wasn't a hot that you could roast you know, marshmallows on. It was the glory of God, and he had no other words to use to describe it. It was on fire, and when he pulls aside to go talk to, to this bush, speaks to him, and the bush says to him, take your shoes off, because the ground you're on is holy ground. Why take your shoes off? Oh, I, can't, I can't go there. We don't have no time. Okay, so, and then, so God speaks to him and says, I've called you to go back and to deliver my people because I've heard their cry. And he tells them what to tell the elders of Israel. Well, the last time they saw Moses, he was running away because he was afraid of Pharaoh. 
So Moses is thinking, is why are they going to listen to me? And, and so he says to God, well, who am I going to say told me this? I get chills when I just even say this. Who, who, I got to tell them, who's told me you're going to deliver us? And God says, here's what you tell them. I am. I, I am what? No, I, I am that I am. And that's this word, Yahweh. What it means is, and it's a hard to really grasp the meaning, it means the self-existent one. That's hard for our minds to grasp because everything we know has had a beginning and an end. Because we're living in a world that has beginnings and ends. Because it's temporal. People were born and then they die. Things are built and they're constructed and eventually they rot and they fall apart. Everything has a beginning and end. But God just is. No beginning, no end. He exists, this is really hard to get, outside of time. Which is why to Him it's always now. So when God sent His Son to the earth, He stepped into time. But God exists outside of time. The fact that He is the self-existent one means He owes His existence to no one else. And the corollary of that is everything else owes its existence to Him. He's the bottom line. He is the foundation of everything. Everything comes from Him, exists for Him, for His pleasure, the Bible says. We were created. You were created for His pleasure, not yours. We exist because of Him. We exist from Him. And we exist for Him. Every breath you breathe has come from Him. He may not be leaning over you, breathing it into you, but it's all because of a word He spoke thousands of years ago. Everything exists because of this God. That is all in this term. Yahweh. All existence comes from Him. There is no higher authority that exists. Romans 13.1 says, All authority comes from God. I was thinking about that one day. Well, where does it... Because I wrote a course, which we're just teaching now, on spiritual authority, which is not the authority we exercise. It's God's authority in the church. And I was thinking about, well, where does authority come from? Well, it comes from God. Well, how did He get it? That's, that's the way my sick mind works. And I realized, if you buy a car, where do they get the title? They get the title from General Motors because General Motors made it. So whoever makes something owns it. They can transfer ownership, but when you make it, that's where your ownership and your authority comes from. The reason all authority comes from God is everything comes from God. So we're just laying this foundation. This is who He said He is. So there's no higher authority. All authority comes from Him. That means our politicians and all the people that have ever exercised good authority or bad authority, they got that authority. He may not have chosen them, but the authority they're exercising comes from Him, and there'll come a day when they have to give an account for how they exercised His authority that He entrusted to them. That's why we pray for them in authority. 
This revelation of who this self-existent God is is the foundation for all of our relationship with Him. Our life, every minute of it, comes from Him. And here's the statement I want to make. As a result, this is what God wants to get, we are not equals with God. We may be children of God, but you're children of God because of something God did for you, not something you did for Him. And here's what God's trying to get across to them and to us today. Here's what the fear of the Lord means. We don't debate issues with God. You'll see that in a minute. But we all do that. I don't like this. We just came back from three weeks in Florida, and the temptation, especially when you wake up yesterday morning, whatever it was with snow, is why didn't we stay there? (laughs) We came back, everything down there is green, the sun's brighter. It's like, what are we doing? Are we crazy? I mean, we're in our 70s, we could retire, get down there, but I don't have the option of deciding what I want to do. I don't have the option of deciding what I want to do. Well, I've got my rights. Ha! <laughs> Ask Adam how far that got him. Where do your rights come from? <laughs> but we forget who he is. So we get mad at him. It's okay to be real. We think we're entitled to things. We think when God tells us to do something, he's decided to enter into discussion with us. See, when we reach a decision, one of us will come up with an, with an idea, well, maybe we should do this, so we'll talk back and forth. And sometimes we think we've agreed, and sometimes we've, you know, she thinks we've agreed, and I don't think we have. That's part of being married, for those of you who aren't married. But we, we, because we're equals, we have the right to discuss things back and forth, but we think we can do that with God. I don't like that. Who are we? We forget who He is. So we're going to look at a, quickly at a couple of examples here of, of people that have struggled with this. And one of the greatest examples comes out of a book that's often difficult to understand. It's the book of Job. Job's the oldest book in the Bible. Job, Job has written a story about... And it's a, basically it's a play. It's a, it's a narrative. And, and Job is, is declared by God a righteous man and without fault. And all of a sudden, Job has a day you don't want to ever think of for your whole life. In two days, he loses everything, except the one person he probably should have... No, I won't go there. He loses everything. All his children, all his possessions. And this was one of the richest men in the world at the time. And the next day, he loses his health. And then if things aren't bad enough, his friends show up. And his friends show up to try to help Job understand why he's going through this. And there's a whole lot in what they say in terms of, because it represents just the philosophies, different religious ideas. But he's basically there trying to explain to God why you're going through this. And Job is a righteous man. And Job handles all that. I mean, his wife only takes three chapters to tell him to curse God and die. And, and he, he's, he's bearing up onto this, but the strain begins to get to him about halfway through. And under real pressure, things that are down inside of us will begin to come out. And what begins to come out of Job is if I'm so righteous, if I'm so good, why am I going through this? 
And we're going to pick up, Job out of his frustration begins to say things to God that reflect the attitude we often have. And that's why I want to look at this. Job chapter 9. So Job's already worked up. And now it's beginning to come out. Let's pick up in verse uh, 32. He's complaining about God. For he, God, is not a man as I am. He's, what he's basically saying is, this is unfair that I may answer him or that we should go to court together. Listen to this. Nor is there a mediator between us, we'll talk about that in a minute, who may lay a hand on both of us and let him take his rod away from me so that I don't dread him or be terrified by him. Then I would speak and would not fear him, but it's not so with me. Job is saying, look, this isn't fair. All this is going on in my life and if somebody else did this to me, I could call, haul him into court and we could get an independent judge to ha- make each of us responsible. In other words, God, this isn't fair because of who you are. I can't find somebody to make you responsible for what's happening to me. I can't call you into court the way I can with somebody else. Now, think of what an image of God that has. He's forgotten who this God is. This is our issue. God, this isn't fair. And the real thing that's unfair is it's you I'm in issue with. Anybody else I could deal with, but I can't deal with you because I can't get you into court. Now that I'm afraid of you, and that's what keeps me from saying some other things, if you take this fear away, then I could be open and honest with you. And there's much more, he says, but we don't have time to get into all of that. And then God, in chapter about 36, after all these friends of his have given their opinions, God shows up on the scene in chapter 38. And it's like he moves his prophet aside and says, all right, I'm going to answer you. Oh, Lord, we've got to move on. I just want to read parts of this. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. So it's as if God's saying, okay, you want to haul me into court? I want to put you in the stand. I have some questions to ask you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? And who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, that's talking about angels, or who shut up the sea with its doors? And when it burst forth and issued from the womb, who, when I made the clouds its garment and the darkness its swaddling, when I first ten, when I fix my limit for, he goes on and on and on. We have to stop here. It goes on and on and on and on and on, all down through the rest of this chapter. And then Job answers him in chapter forty. 
So all God's doing is simply reminding Job who God is. So Job answers him, and then we're going to go to verse chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. I'm, what shall I answer you? There's a, he's really having a self-pity party here. I will lay my hands over my mouth once I've spoken, and I will not answer yet twice, and I'll proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job, Job out of a whirlwind. Now prepare, I love this, prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Who would condemn me that you may justify? Who have an arm like the Lord? And he goes on and on and on and on and on. So God's way, notice God never explains why he went through this stuff. God's answer to Job is to remind Job with these riveting, powerful questions of, Job, you've forgotten who I am. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord, this kind of fear, is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom. Another guy is Jonah. Jonah's a prophet of God, and, and the, 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 the most... Oh, I've got to be quick. The, 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 the most vilest nation at the time were the Ninevites. They were horrible people, cruel people. And God sends the prophet Jonah to go preach a 47-word uh, sermon, and yet 40 days you're going to die, basically. Get your affairs in order. And then Job, when God, Jonah, when God tells Jonah to do this, you know the story, he goes the opposite way. God has to have him swallowed by a fish and spit him back out headed to Nineveh. Because the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is he was afraid if I tell them what God says, they may repent and God may change his mind and I can't stand to have that happen. So when that's ultimately what happens, Jonah goes out on a hill and sits down there and pouts that God has had mercy on this nation. And God has this method of getting to Jonah. A little tree grows up to give him shade. Jonah begins to love this little tree because it's giving him shade. And then the tree shrivels up and dies. And Jonah complains. And God says, you had more concern for this little tree than you did for 600,000 souls, let alone their livestock. And the last one we're going to look at, and we'll take a few minutes on this one, is Romans. Paul's we know Romans 1 through 8, all the great mercy of God. But Romans 9, Paul begins to address the issue of the Jews, because Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, before he was saved. And Paul talks about the Jews, how, well, well, what about them? God entrusted the oracles to them. He gave the word of God to them. And he talks about the covenant that he has with them. And then he goes on, I better just turn there because of time. This is Romans chapter 9. We may review a little bit of this next week, but this is, I want to, this is so important to get this across. So Paul is in the process of expecting, explaining why God has rejected Israel temporarily to use the Gentiles to come in to make Israel jealous. Just as he was originally going to use Israel to make the world jealous, and they didn't, they failed. We'll pick up in verse 14. Because God just talked about how God chose Jacob, who was one of two twins, he chose the younger twin over the older when the law at the time was that the older child would get all the benefits and would, be get, would get the inheritance. And God's saying, I chose the younger because I wanted to. So it's an issue of what right does God have to do that? 
And that's what Paul is raising here. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? See, unrighteousness does what we think is not fair. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I have compassion. So then, listen, it's not him who wills, nor him who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. That's saying it's not him who earns it, it's God who chooses to show mercy. The issue is here is God chose to show mercy to the younger child and not give it to the older child. And Paul's raising the question, is that fair? And God's saying, mercy's mine to give or not give. Verse 17. And this gets even more so. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. What he's talking about there is there was a, there was a showdown when the children of Israel were being brought out of Egypt. There was a showdown between Pharaoh and God. Because Pharaoh means God. Every Pharaoh was considered a God, an immortal. That's why they built the tombs so that they could preserve their immortality. That's why they passed the same title on, so that they were still God. Of course, they're not. So, because those tombs, we've checked them out, they've got bones in them. Uh, by the way, the tomb we worship, there's no bones in that one. And so, so, so what this is saying is, God's saying, wait, if I raised Pharaoh up just for the purpose of showing what my power is, what business is that of yours? Then he's going to get into this. Look at this. Verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Well, then you say, well, how does he find fault who he is, who has resisted his will? He said, well, if he hardened Pharaoh's heart just to show this power, showdown of power, why is that fair? Pharaoh, why is it right for Pharaoh, for God's heart, what fault does Pharaoh have? And what Paul is about to point out is, who are we to judge God's righteousness? Because that means we're holding God to a standard that we think is above Him. This is what happened in the garden. God tempted them to pull themselves away from the God, Satan tempted them to pull themselves away from God and exercise their own independent judgment about what God said and we've been doing it ever since and that's the root of the rebellion because to do that is to deny who God really is are you getting this? some of you so let's see what he goes on to say this is so important to get because we live with this every day Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power or right over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? One point, uh, Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah, says to, 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 to the people, you know, does, does the Clay have a right to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? And this is what Paul is referring to here. He's questioning who we are as, in terms of our rights vis-a-vis God and His rights. 
And here's his answer. See, he, not, he never answers the question. The question is, is it fair for God to do that to Pharaoh? Is it fair for God to do that, to choose Isaac over his older brother Esau? Is that fair? And Paul never answers the question of why God did it. Paul answers by saying, who are you to raise the question? Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much suffering, long-suffering, the vessels prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Paul's saying here, and the other thing about this is, is we forget what mercy is. Well, think, wait a minute. Paul, God wasn't fair to give mercy somewhere and not give mercy elsewhere. But mercy, by its very definition, is not giving somebody what's fair. Think about that. If you and I got what was fair and just, we'd all have one thing in common we'll burn in hell forever. You're living and breathing today here. Because God's not fair in that sense. We live and exist by His mercy, by His grace. And grace is not something that He's obligated to give. Grace is something that the all-righteous, all-holy God has chosen to give because of what He's like. I am... Jehovah, the self-existent one. Now what we see as we go on is God is also a, a father. He's also a loving father. I know, another time. I got a big clock back there. <laughs> He's a loving father. So how do we balance this out? This has been a struggle in my life because my father was more of an authoritarian than he was compassionate, understanding, and loving. So I've had issues with authority because I get afraid of them and want to run away from them. And then I saw this picture this morning as it going For those who have been alive for, you know, couple, those are closer to my age, you'll remember a picture years ago from President Kennedy's office, the Oval Office, when he's sitting back in his rocking chair with leaders around it, and the cameraman caught under the floor of his desk was his little son, John John. And that image is so powerful. Here in the presence of the most powerful man on the earth at the time, with the great authority, here in the Oval Office, the seat of all that authority, here was this little boy playing underneath this desk because it was the office of his father who loved him. The power and authority was still there, but he was a son of that father. But we are children of God because He chose to give Himself to us out of mercy and so much so that He paid the ultimate price. So the foundation of our relationship with Him is always He is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one. I have no debates with Him. Not only is He always right, whether He's right or not isn't even the issue. He is God. 
I have no standing before him. Now, he doesn't mind if we ask questions. He doesn't mind if we're real and express our frustration. He didn't kill Job. He could have. He just came and said, okay, Job, that's enough. You've run on enough. Let me answer you. And he never answered the questions. He said, let me remind you of who I am. And when you, we didn't get time to do it. When you get to the end, it broke everything in Job's life. He got peace, he got humility again, and he got healed, he got restored, he got everything back in his life again because he came back to the foundation of who this God is that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word. We thank you that the Word, by your presence, by your Spirit, can speak to us because you're a living God. You are right now the same God you were to Israel back then. You are right now the same God you were to Job. You are right now the same God you were to Paul. You are right now the same God you were to Moses. You are right now the same God you've ever always been and always will be. And you are the self-existent one. And by your infinite grace and love and mercy, we stay, we are here today we ask you Lord as we go through this week and we face the issues of life that we'll realize the tremendous comfort that the God that we serve is not subject to us and not subject to anything else but the God we served is the firm foundation the Jehovah God of all of history on whom we stand today and for that we give you thanks in Jesus name Amen